Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 12 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. As always, the running order is in the show notes, so do look at those for a comprehensive overview of the topics we covered in this episode. But just to give you a taste of what we looked at, in Germany we discussed the appointment by Borussia Dortmund of Marco Rose. He'll take over, of course, at the Signal Iduna Park at the end of the season. We looked at the pulsating title race in Ligan. In Spain, Barlow dismissed and to an extent accepted the theory that we are seeing the end of an era of sorts for La Liga. And then in Italy, Michael reviewed a brilliant Milan derby before looking at the issues at Cagliari and Parma. We discussed all of those topics and more in detail, so hopefully you'll learn a thing or two or perhaps even three. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, follow at FFOps on Twitter or visit FreelanceFootballOps.com. Right. On now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Enjoy. We mentioned on the Twitter that last weekend felt huge for each of the four leagues we cover. Some really consequential results, shall we say. So I'm really excited to get stuck into what was an excellent weekend of football on the continent. Plenty to get through. Michael Jones, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm coming into this podcast with my first kind of haircut for the first year and a bit, so looking as fresh as I'm ever going to look, basically. Looking fantastic, Michael. Loving the shirt as well. Uh, Loving the shirt as well. Rudy Barlow, how are you doing? I don't you for the haircut recently. (laughs) No, it's looking much like an overgrown jungle at the minute. Um, I'm going to have to bite the bullet and get James, my flatmate, to to shear off the sides and the back of this this uh, rainforest. You cannot trust James Williamson with your hair, Paul. <laughs> that is a fatal I mean, move. Don't do that. <laughs> I don't really see, like, there. there's no, this hair isn't going anywhere. It cannot remain, it cannot keep growing. It can't be left to its own devices. It's, it's got to come off, Ali. Yeah. Fair enough, Barlow. I think to be, to be fair, you would too. Uh, buzz cut. So, so do <laughs> do press on with that, and, and in two weeks' time, we'll, we'll see if you've if you've uh, been brave enough to to go with the buzz cut. <laughs> I think the less said about James Williamson's barbering skills, the better, though, and the more said about Serie A, um, the better. So, I think Serie A, given that we had the Milan derby on Sunday, represents the perfect starting point for this episode. Last Sunday, of course, there was the Derby de Milano. There was Derby de Milano delight for Inter Milan. Consecutive devastating displays against Lazio and AC Milan have the Nerazzurri now sitting four points clear at the top of Serie A. What's more, Antonio Conte looks to have finally found his strongest 11. 
Now, just comparing them to Conte's former teams, a formula of no European football, a settled-looking lineup, and victories in critical games tend to lead to an irresistible title charge. Do you think history will repeat itself here, Michael? Yeah, I think there's a very good chance it will. I mean, just looking at those two games first, two brilliant victories in what was a testing week, but without the distractions of European football, like you said, that their opponents had to factor in at some point. They beat Lazio just over a week ago, uh, almost two weeks ago now, 3-1, and then AC Milan 3-0. So both convincing free goal victories. And what was very noticeable for these big games is that Conte finally went unchanged with his starting eleven, which, well, firstly went unchanged with his starting eleven, but it was a central trio in midfield actually being outweighed by more attacking players than defensive players in Varela and Eriksson mm -hmm. uh, with Brozovic in the middle, who I wouldn't say is overly conservative for a sort of deeper line midfielder either. You know, you've got three really good technical footballers that are in, there, in there and Conte's midfields in the past and for the best part of his time at Inter, he's preferred to go for a bit more experience and a less expansive midfield three. But I think the big impact that this has had is it's getting you know, the full flowing partnership out of Romelu Lukaku and Latara Martinez again. And I think it's fair to say Lukaku's been the best player in Serie A this season, but, and I would say he was Inter's, Inter Milan's most dangerous player in these two games. However, you know, Inter largely being criticised this season for being so overly reliant on Lukaku. But what's been great about these performances is that they, they seem to be getting the right tune out of Lukaku and Martinez together. And Martinez scored in both games, got an assist, won a penalty in the games as well. And I think we've struggled to see the best of Martinez since you may remember the rumours of him moving to Barcelona last year. Mm -hmm. And I think that really affected him on the field a lot. And he, he seems to be playing with a huge smile on his face. And that's not even just like proverbial. Like you watch, <laughs> you watch him when he's playing and he seems to really enjoy himself. And it's bringing more out of Lukaku as well. You know, Lukaku doesn't have to just try and carry this Inter Milan attack on his shoulders. He's got the creative assets of Varela and Eriksen behind him. And when you just look across the entire team, everything's just coming into place. The wing backs, I mean, Hakimi, we've talked about his abilities all season, but... Ivan Perisic on the other side, we know going forward, he's a brilliant player, but he's slowly starting to look like he's molding into a more natural looking wing back more. The defense is looking more settled, settled back free. And then Handanovic is in excellent form. He, he, he was sensational in the derby. And I think his career trajectory at Inter Milan has often gone against Inter Milan's form. But Handanovic is playing really well. Everything's just coming into place for them. And I think unless we see long-standing returns of the likes of Kolarov, Vidal and Gagliardini and Darmian maybe who have been playing much more smaller substitute roles in the last few weeks, which I think is what Milan, Inter Milan fans want to be seeing. I think the only way is, is if Conte starts to mess around with this starting 11 a lot, because I think he's finally got it right. He's found the perfect formula and it is falling into that Conte formula, which tends to lead him to a league title. They've got Genoa and Palmer up next. Not easy games, but easier than the previous two. And I would not be surprised if the gap at the top, with it being four points at the moment, that's the lowest from first to second, we may see until the end of the season now, if Inter can stick, you know, and they can keep playing like they are. Yeah, finally, some consistency in selection. As you say, Michael, I think that will be crucial for the run-in. Just a player who, of course, left the San Siro in January was Raja Nyangolan. 
the enigmatic Belgian return to Cagliari, where he'd enjoyed a very fruitful 2019-2020 season on loan. This time around, their situation is far more precarious, with a loss to relegation rivals Trino extending a horrendous winless run in the league dating back to November 7th. But that loss finally led to the dismissal of manager Eusebio Di Francesco. Michael, just how does a team containing the likes of Nyanglan, Diego Godin and Daniel Rugani, led until last Sunday anyway by a manager with Champions League semi-final experience, end up in this position? Yeah, it's really quite impressive, really, when you with the names you've mentioned. I mean, to give you an idea of how bad their form is, only Dijon in Liga and have the worst run over the past six games in Europe. And I think they've gone 10 out of 11 games. They've lost 10 out of the last 11, 18 league games without a win. It's It's been awful, awful form uh, for Di Francesco and has ultimately led to his dismissal. And in fairness to them, if you were going to somehow draw positives from it, they've only been losing by narrow margins recently. And against Torino, which was obviously such a huge game, which was make or break for Di Francesco and ultimately cost him his job. But they were doing a lot of stuff right in the opening half. You know, Nangalan was pulling the strings and attack, linking up play between midfield and attack, getting Simeone and Jao Pedro into the game. And they did look quite a threat and they had some good chances. But if you want to sort of understand Cagliari's problems, you kind of have to bring it back to last season when you said Nangalan, Nangalan was playing really well for Cagliari. And they really had a, about this time last year, they started to slump. They only won about three games, I think, in the last half of the season under with Walter Zenger coming in, um, ex-Wolves boss, who hasn't been great at most places where he's gone. But there was a real sense of optimism this summer because Di Francesco's come in. Now, he's not been the most successful in Italy since probably Sassuolo, where, which led him to get in the Roma job. He's brilliant there about five years ago now. But, you know, they also saw Marco Rog come in, Godin came in, Regani, Gaston Pereiro came in on a free agent from PSV Eindhoven. He'd been one of the better players in the era of the busy over the past few years, really talented player, but it's just not worked for them. And I think, I don't know if the players quickly lost faith in Di Francesco's methods because they were scoring quite a few goals. I think they're averaging about two per game up until November. But mm-hmm. then after that, I think they were still not picking up that many points and they really started to lose confidence in their attack. And, they weren't keeping many clean sheets either. And it's that awful combination, which just leads to one of these awful win- losing runs, which is something they had experienced the previous season as well, when we looked at that poor winning record in the second half of last season. And I think Nangalan returning in the start of January did offer a lot of hope that they could restore some form, but it's not really come around. And I guess it's just, you've got led to where we are now. And Di Francesco, it's really not worked out from here. And I think it's, he's going to find it hard to get another job in Italian football now. I think he'll have to look overseas for his next job. But they've got Crotone, who are bottom of the league on Sunday. This is a huge game. And um, it's interesting to see who's come in. The Leonardo Semplici was the Spal manager for six years. Spal got relegated last season, but he got them up to the Serie A for the first time in uh, about 50 years and saw them... 13th in the league in this first season so he's he's certainly earned this shot whilst mm-hmm. they've also brought in a new sporting director the day they've sacked Di Francesco in Capozuccia who had previous success at Cagliari about five years ago and was also the sporting director for Genoa when Gasparini was in charge about a decade ago mm-hmm. and 
So he, he's mm. got he's got a good resume actually, and it will be really interesting to see how they get on. I, I guess the only thing is is just as to how stable Cagliari can remain off the field. I think this is going to go either way because they did hand Di Francesco a new contract only a month ago, and they've now sacked him. So as to how much we can look into these new appointments, yeah, it's hard to tell. But the, the very least they need is a huge reaction against Grotone. Whoever loses that game for me is a definite for relegation. Another team currently in the relegation zone is Parma. A neutral's favourite in Italy and beyond, largely thanks to their iconic past. Roberto Diversa's side are in serious risk of dropping into Serie B at the end of the season. Like Cagliari, they have also not tasted victory in the league since November. They were, of course, so close to ending that winless run at the weekend, racing into a 2-0 lead against Udinese. But a second half collapse saw both teams share the spoils in a 2-2 draw. Their short-term prospects might look bleak, Michael, but you're still maintaining that there are reasons for fans to be optimistic, aren't you? I think so. And just going off that performance, there was a lot in the first half to be optimistic about. Like Cagliari, they've been very goal shy as of late, but they raced into a two-goal lead. And um, Andreas Cornelius, you might remember him. He's played in uh, the Premier League, played in Ligue 1. He's mm-hmm. been across mm-hmm. Europe a bit now towering striker he scored his first goal of the season which is quite remarkable really because he's not had any injury problems and he got 12 last season but he's just looked a completely different player as a Palmer as a team this season and it really got a reaction out of them they got their second goal but they were pegged back by a resilient Udinese team courtesy of two headed efforts and I guess Udinese just demonstrated the resilience that's been missing from Palmer this season and it's just not really gone to plan when we look at what's happened to them, they were, they've gone on this long run without winning a game from November. But one thing they have done, like you said, is you mentioned Diversa. Well, they brought him, they've made a managerial change a lot quicker than Cagliari have done. As to what effect it's worked so far, it's not really led to much improvement from the results. He's still waiting for his first win, given he arrived at the start of January. But Diversa was a, has been a huge figure in Palmer's recent history and he was the guy who took them up from the third tier of Italian football up to the Serie A uh, two seasons ago before getting two mid-table finishes playing quite good football and he left just before Kyle Krauss came in the new owner in September and they've they just struggled to before that diversity didn't it looked like he was going on to sort of greener pastures uh, there was links of him taking a Genoa job that didn't materialize I, I'm really surprised that he didn't actually get another job before Palmer but Fabio Liverani came in. You may remember him as a midfielder for Fiorentina, really talented midfielder. He's managing pedigree isn't anything too shabby, but he only got two wins during his time at Palmer. He just couldn't replicate the results that Diversa was getting with Palmer up until the end of last season. And I do wonder whether Kyle Krauss and Diversa have been in talks for quite a long time regarding that appointment. And it seems like Diversa's only come back on the basis that they made a lot of additions in January. And you look at some of the additions they've made, Kirksey from Bayern Munich, uh, Dennis Mann from Stauer Bucharest, really exciting Romanian winger, Graziano Pella, the other end of his career, he's come from China. Mm-hmm. There's a number of players they've brought in, all of quite, the recruitment looks quite smart, but whether there's too many players brought in at once, you don't know, but I guess they, they just had too many players that, they can't be doing much worse than they are anyway. So 
maybe they do need a complete revamp to try and produce some kind of miracle. I think going forwards, essentially the, this weekend in Serie A is a huge one at the bottom of the table. They've got Spezia. I think even Cagliari will want Parma to beat Spezia because they'll want to bring another team back into the relegation race. But this is the big chance for Diversa to get his Parma team back to winning ways and finally to see such, some of these new signings deliver. And I do think really exciting signings and Cornelius back amongst the goals, whether that can lead them to a bit of a miraculous relegation escape. It's too early to say yet, but let's see how they get on in the next game or two. Yeah, an intriguing relegation battle developing in Italy. Thanks for that. Michael, we'll wrap up our analysis of Italian football there and turn our attention to Germany and the Bundesliga. We'll be right back. At the start of last week, Borussia Dortmund announced that Marco Rosa would be taking charge of the club at the end of the season. With what really felt like a statement appointment, the eight times champions of Germany paid the 44-year-old manager's 5 million euro release clause to his current employers, Borussia Mönchengladbach. Given the success he has enjoyed and the attractive style of players implemented at Gladbach, could Rosa be the man to deliver the first Bundesliga title at the Signal Iduna Park since 2012? Potentially, Michael. I think we'll need to wait and see how Rosa's Dortmund look at the start of next season before we have a real idea as to their title credentials. I don't think in his first season, well, I think there's too much work to be done almost. As good a manager as Marco Rose is, I don't think this is just going to be an immediate improvement. But perhaps in the long term, the longer Rose has to imprint his ideas and his tactical philosophy on this Dortmund side, then the greater their chances are potentially of wrestling the title away from Bayern Munich. I think one of the main concerns that has been raised about Rosa while he's been at Gladbach and while he was at Salzburg as well is the fact that Rosa's teams struggle to break down opposition teams who, who let them have the ball. I think it was Jasmine Baba was saying this on the Yellow Wall podcast and to be honest it's a point that I agree with. Now arguably beating a low block, beating a team that lets you have the, the ball is, is one of the most difficult things to do in football. So I'm, I'm not saying this as a huge criticism of Rosa. I think overall it's, it's a really sensible appointment, really exciting manager, and he probably was the right man for the job. But it's just a slight reservation that, that some people might have in terms of when Rosa does arrive at Dortmund. Will he encounter the same issues that, that he's seen at Glasgow and that he did see to an extent at Salzburg? Dortmund, obviously, under Favre as well, would, would sometimes struggle to break down teams who would let them have the ball. So we might see more of the same in, in that sense. But Rosa's style compared to Favre's is, is almost night and day. It's a lot more energetic. There's an intense high press, which we just didn't see under uh, Favre. There's also the fact that Rose has that connection to, to Jurgen Klopp, played under him at Mainz, and that's just the fabled connection at the Signal Iduna Park, isn't it? it? Just even with Edin Terzic to an extent, um, you know, the Klopp connection was there. Rosa has that Klopp connection. So, yeah, I think overall it's, it's a really positive appointment. I think in particular what will excite the Dortmund fans and what has probably tempted and persuaded the Dortmund board is, is Rosa's 
recent record against Bayern. He's won two out of three. We'll remember the game recently where they came back from 2-0 down and won that one at home. Dortmund's record against Bayern, certainly in, over the last couple of years, hasn't been good enough. They've been nearly there, but not quite there. So perhaps Rosa can bring some more positive results against Bayern. More positive results against Bayern won't necessarily on their own win Dortmund the league. But I think it's an important step to eventually winning the Bundesliga. You have to have a better record against Bayern. I'm just looking at the record just now. They've only won one of the last eight against Bayern Munich, which quite frankly isn't good enough. Just as well, Rose's relationship with Haaland. Haaland played under him. I think he only played one game under him at Salzburg, to be fair. So I'm not putting too much emphasis on this, but Rosa did give Haaland his debut at Salzburg there. There's still going to be a, hopefully a positive relationship there. Might be enough to tempt Haaland to stay on and not move in the summer. Although if they don't qualify for the Champions League this year, I'm not too sure if Haaland will stay put. Um, and again, that development of, of young players, Marcus Turam, Florian Neuhaus, have flourished under Rosa Gladbach. And perhaps we could see Rosa work similar magic with, with Jude Bellingham, Giovanna Reina, Yusuf and Mikoko. I mean, they're all very good players already, but there's so much potential for those players to realise. I think Rosa can help them do so. And yeah, again, just that high intensity style, more charismatic on the touchline, more of a presence than Favre ever was. And that was one of the criticisms angled in Favre's direction was that he, he was too passive almost on the touchline. And I think there's almost a need for a coach to be energetic, to be enthusiastic on the touchline at Dortmund anyway. The style, the vertical style contrasts quite significantly with Favre's more possession-based style. It's quite intricate, wasn't it? I think Rosa is more suited to Dortmund than Favre ever was. Favre hits, what, the third best points per game record of any manager in Dortmund's history. But I think he was too passive. His style of play was too anti-Dortmund or too anti-recent Dortmund for Favre ever to be fully taken in by the Dortmund support. Will Rose win them the Bundesliga title? I don't think he'll win it in the first year, but over the long-term project, if he stays put for long enough, given the fact that he only lasted two years at Salzburg before he was tempted elsewhere, and they only lasted two years at Gladbach before he's been tempted elsewhere, who knows? But if he's there long enough, and if he can imprint that high-intensity style, if he can get the most out of those young players, then, yeah, along with a, a better record against Bayern Munich, potentially we could see Dortmund winning the Bundesliga. But it's a long way away yet, and there still remains a lot to be seen. Really interesting, that win percentage stat you had there, Ali. I always find it fascinating when a stat like that comes up and it mm -hmm. totally contrasts everything that you think about a team because I'm sure a lot of people like myself will be very surprised by that. You've yeah. said there that Dortmund will surely be aiming to challenge for the Bundesliga title next year, but they are well out of the title race this season. Last weekend, however, a loss for Bayern Munich away at an Amin Yunus-inspired Eintracht Frankfurt, followed by a convincing win the following day for RB Leipzig against a struggling Hertha Berlin, breathed fresh life into the battle to be crowned Bundesliga champions come May. As recently as a fortnight ago, Bayern sat seven points clear and seemed to be running away with the league. Last four two match days, however, and the lead has now been cut to just two points by RB Leipzig. Could Julian Nagelsmann's side somehow pull it off and put an end to Bayern's eight years of domestic dominance, Ali? 
Yeah, but I think if they did, it would be a case of with one, but at what cost? I think to see RB Leipzig win the Bundesliga would, would be a sad sight for <laughs> many Bundesliga fans, myself. What a fun Included, exactly, exactly, Barlow. Um, and to be honest, if you were to put me in a position, I'd probably rather see Bayern win yet again than RB Leipzig win the Bundesliga, but that's a matter <laughs> for, for another day. Can they, can they do it? I think from the outset, what I would say is that for Leipzig... For RB Leipzig to win the Bundesliga come the end of the season, we'll be talking more about how far Bayern have fallen below their ceiling rather than how well Leipzig have done. And that might be harsh on Leipzig, but it seems like a common theme over recent years. One of the main criticisms, other than the fact he was perhaps too passive on the touchline about Lucien Favre, was that he wasn't able to capitalise on a weakened Bayern under Niko Kovac. And this season as well, despite all of Hansi Flick's success, there have been questions raised about their defensive vulnerabilities. And I think there they are fair reservations, there are fair questions that have been raised. So I think, I mean, that's just the nature of it, isn't it? When Bayern are so dominant, if they're not to, to win the league, then questions right away are asked and criticisms are probably fairly made about how far they've fallen below their ceiling. It would be the same in Liga, and for example, if PSG don't win, people will be talking more about how PSG fell below their ceiling rather than how well other teams did. And I think we probably would see that. And I think it probably would be fair just about to to approach it from that angle. But just in terms of the current state of both teams, Bayern Munich, obviously, under Hansi Flick, they've only lost five games in all competitions, right, since Flick took over back in November 2019 which in itself is a remarkable statistic. I mean, they've won more trophies than they've lost games, which I know it's quite a widely recycled statistic on social media, but it doesn't make it any less remarkable. But yeah, they do look vulnerable defensively. I think Byron Hutchinson was actually talking about this. I was doing a live stream for the guys over at Pure Football on Tuesday night, and Byron was talking about how to get at Byron, and basically we've seen about how they are vulnerable to balls over the top. They can be vulnerable out wide and... Sometimes the back line doesn't quite move in unison, but they almost accept that. They accept that that's one of their main weaknesses, if not their main weakness. And so there is a reliance, perhaps over-reliance, you could say, on Alfonso Davis's pace to get back in and recover when teams do beat their high press. And there's also a reliance on Manuel Neuer's phenomenal 1v1 ability. Now, don't get me wrong, Alfonso Davis, one of the fastest players in the game, Manuel Neuer, one of the best 1v1 shot stoppers, one of the best shot stoppers who'll stop in the game. But you do wonder just how sustainable that is. And Bayern are there to be got at time and time again. You know, they will concede goals, but they'll make up for it by scoring more goals at the other the, the other end. It's you know, I know that's a fairly simplistic statement to make, but you do wonder just how sustainable that is. For what it's worth, I personally think they will win the Bundesliga. I think they've just got too much quality there. They've got the the mentality, the winning mentality, the experience of winning the Bundesliga so many times over the last decade. Nagelsmann, on the other hand, doesn't have that experience. So I think that in itself is obviously in Bayern's favour. Just talking about sustainability, though, regardless of that winning mentality, I'm not sure how sustainable a high press is over such a packed schedule, bearing in mind that you have Champions League duties as well as, you know, your league duties. They are out of the, the Pokal. They were knocked out by Holston Kiel earlier on. But I, I do wonder how sustainable it is. They're allowing more shots than they were 
last season and despite the fact that Norris is an excellent goalkeeper, again, how much longer can you get away with that? They could get away with it to the end of the season um, and they probably will, but questions do need to be asked there. Just on Leipzig, obviously, great team. Um, you know, we, we can disagree with, with what the club stands for. In essence, you know, an energy drink marketing itself via a top flight football team. But great players, you know, you've got the, the more experienced spine of Peter Galacci, Marcel Sabitzer, Emil Forsberg. You've got the exciting and up-and-coming players, Christopher Nkunku, Danny Olmo, Dalpin McCannell's obviously leaving at the end of the season. So there is a good blend there, but questions again do need to be asked of Nagelsmann's ability to win against the big teams. I'm talking about the game against PSG, which I think was quite startling, just how frozen almost, I think was the word that Andy Brassel used in his, his Guardian column, how frozen Leipzig looked like rabbits in the headlight against PSG. Um, just in terms of his record across his managerial career, one win against Dortmund, two wins against Gladbach, two wins against Bayern. That includes his time at Hoffenheim as well. Now, they've played each of those opponents about nine or ten times. So if Leipzig are to almost break through that glass ceiling and win the Bundesliga, that's something they need to improve upon and I think as well quite depressingly the, the sale of Meccano to Bayern was almost a confirmation of the natural order and um, I think it was Andy Brassel again who was making that point in the Guardian and when one of your key performers can just go to Bayern like that it's quite a depressing confirmation of the natural order I just think that that natural order coupled with Bayern's mentality the fact that they've won so often over the last decade, the Bundesliga and Nagelsmann's inability, it seems, to win in these big games against big teams. I just think that will probably favour Bayern, despite all their weaknesses at the at the back, despite all those vulnerabilities. One point which which could potentially favour Leipzig would I was thinking anyway would have been an injury to Robert Lewandowski. So I thought, I wonder. I wonder how many games he's missed through injury throughout his career. Bear in mind that Lewandowski's into his 30s now. And according to transfer market anyway, he's not missed more than 10 games with one injury. Normally he misses two or three games and that's it. There was a spell at the end of 2019, start of 2020, when he missed about 10 games or so. Other than that, he's had very little time out due to injury. So there you go. Perhaps the one hope that Leipzig might have had to level the playing field, if you like, there seems to be very little chance of that happening. I think it's just worth saying that you could drop Bayern into any of the top leagues in the world right now. And I don't think, I, I reckon they'd win it hands down. For me, they mm. are the best team. Maybe Manchester City would give them a run for their money and we'll see how that plays out in the Champions League. But Leipzig to be two points off them, I think Nagelsmann's still doing a fantastic job. In phenomenal. That yeah, he's doing a phenomenal job. And I think you'll get even better over the seasons to come. He's always learning. He's so willing to learn. He's so motivated as a coach. I just think this season, they will fall short. Anyway, we are going to wrap up the Bundesliga chat there and we'll turn our attention west to talk about a pulsating title race in France, in league, and we'll be right back. The top four in Ligue 1 are separated by just six points with 12 games to go. Christophe Galtier's Lille sit top with 58 points. Rudy Garcia's Lyon are in second with 55 points. Maurizio Pochettino's PSG sit third with 54 points. And Nico Kovac's Monaco are fourth with 52 points. 
We have a genuine title race on our hands, don't we, Ali? This season, yeah, we do have a genuine title race, which is lovely. Uh, yeah, you, you pointed out the current state of affairs. Lille 58, Leon 55, PSG 54, Monaco 52. Obviously, PSG probably still are just about favourites, but it's no longer in their hands. I think that's only a good thing for French football. I'll, I'll say a word firstly for Nico Kovac's Monaco because while they've been in this excellent run since mid-December, I don't think they'll have enough in the tank to win Ligue 1, but they've already had a bearing on what will ultimately happen with two wins over PSG. Now, Nico Kovac, I know that we did question certain aspects of him as a coach tactically, but I think him and Monaco are almost a perfect fit. Uh, and I think credit has to go for him to him for the way that he has really taken this Monaco team to another level in terms of performances. And they're also now sitting in, in a European spot as well, which is ultimately where they want to be. Twice, he's outsmarted PSG tactically. The 3-2 win in the Principality, coming from 2-0 down at half-time, that slight tactical tweak, bringing on Cesc Fabregas at half-time, winning 3-2, outsmarted Thomas Tuchel. Pochettino comes in, and Kovac outsmarts him as well. After Mbappe's heroics at the new Camp, sorry to bring up sad memories for you there, Paul, I don't want to make you cry, but after Mbappe's heroics in Barcelona, Kovac quite clearly realised, wait a minute, we need to stop Mbappe and probably most coaches realise that, so I'm not affording too much credit to, to, to Kovac for realising that. But what I will do is I will credit Kovac for how he reacted to the threat of Mbappe. Axel Dizazi came back in, was excellent in kind of shepherding Mbappe at the game. Ruben Aguiar uh, was playing slightly further forward, but showed so much energy, setting up Sofia and Diop for that first goal on Sunday night in that 2-0 win, but also putting in such a brilliant shift defensively. They nullified the threat of Mbappe, which for all his relatively poor form domestically, it still takes some doing. Aurelien Chouamemi and Yusuf Fofana, the kind of midfield two, the, the double six in that midfield, absolutely fantastic. So important to the way this Monaco team plays. And for a duo so young as well, hats off to Kovac for showing faith in them. Because the two of them have had games where they have been slightly off the pace. But hats off to Kovac for, for showing faith in them and he's getting the most out of Kevin Voland and Wissam Ben They are excellent team players who are also capable of coming up with the, the goods in front of goal. Um, but having said that, I don't think Monaco will be league and winners coming into the season, but they'll definitely have a bearing on, on what ultimately happens and they already have. Just in terms of Lille and Lyon, uh, I think, yeah, it's, it's down to those two to really show that they have what it takes to win the title. PSG, as I've said, will still be favourites, but Lille and Lyon have a head start now over PSG. Lille, I think the experience of Jose Font, Bonjamon André and Burek Yelmaz will be invaluable in the run-in. Burek Yelmaz is currently out injured and I'm not sure for how much longer he'll be out, but experience is so, so crucial in any title race, I feel. I'm not saying that you won't win anything with kids. You, you, you can have exciting young players in there, but you need to have some sort of experience through the spine of the team. And in Font, Andre and Yilmaz, we will have that. I think that's going to be crucial. They obviously won Ligue 1 back in 2011 under Rudy Garcia. Of course, he did the Coupe de France and Ligue 1 double. Um, Rudy Garcia now, of course, at Lyon. So it'd be interesting if he were to win it 
this year. I think Christophe Galtier um, perhaps deserves more credit. I know that, Barlow, you were certainly asking about this in the chat beforehand. I think you'd intended to raise it as a question, so I've preempted that question. Sorry, Barlow. I'm going to answer it now. When he took over it at, at Leo uh, back in 2017, December 2017, ultimately to replace Bielsa, whose spell in charge of Leo had been fairly disastrous. They were actually in the relegation zone at that point, and there was a relegation battle on their hand. Gautier steered them away from relegation. They narrowly avoided relegation that year, but in the next season, they guided them to a second-place finish. He's done an excellent job, and he has them in a really good position to go on and have a go at winning the title. The one concern I would raise is the lack of depth in defence. If they were to experience, or rather suffer, an injury to Jose Font, as good as Sven Botman's been, I feel like Font is so important to Sven Botman's play. Sven Botman, relatively inexperienced, of course. Font talks him through the game brilliantly. Uh, the two of them, just an absolutely solid defensive pairing. Lose Font or even lose Botman, and I think maybe their chances take a slight hit. Leon, I think they're probably more likely to win the league than than Lille. Uh, obviously, Rudy Garcia's been there, done that, and, and got the, the league-winning T-shirt back in 2011. They're looking really good with Cadaveri and Toko Ikambi either side of the pine and inverted 4-3-3. They've changed up a little bit tactically in recent weeks. I think when you combine Garcia's experience as a manager, his record's good and it does tend to tail off and ends quite acrimoniously. But I would fancy Garcia with that experience to be able to go on and, and guide Lee on to the title. The fact that we've got no Europe to distract them is huge. So when all is said and done, obviously PSG under Pochettino, I think, yeah, I think a combination of fatigue from not having that rest after the Champions League run straight in almost to the start of the league on season. Injuries, they've suffered so many injuries this season. And I know they do have probably, well, they do have the deepest squad in the league, but injuries will always have an impact on your season, regardless of how deep your squad is. And instability as well, replacing Tuchel midway through the season. Pochettino's side are... Still looking for an identity, I think, with, with the words used in a Guardian column, uh, the Get French Football News Guardian column. And to be honest, I can see that for all they were impressive against Barcelona, the record against the big teams this season hasn't been great. One point from 12 against the other sides in the top four. They're away to Lyon on the 21st of March. They're at home to Lille on the 4th of April. After those games have been played, I think we'll have a much clearer picture in terms of just how likely it is that PSG will or won't retain their league and title. They're so unable as well to control the opposition in transition. I think the, the Brest game, they obviously won that 3-0, but they looked vulnerable. That's the, the key word that I think of when I watch um, PSG. For all, they have the flair up front. For all, Verratti is one of the most poetic players in world football. They do look there to be got at. And one point from 12 against other sides in the top four, that speaks for itself. We're going to wrap up our league and chat there michael's dropped off i think his internet's betrayed him but uh, we're going to take a quick break fill up our water bottles and rudy barlow is going to tell us everything that's been going on in la liga we'll be right back la liga's representatives didn't fare so well in europe over the past fortnight uh, we've seen plenty of buzz on social media channels and talk that we were witnessing the end of an era Certainly the suggestion that Erling Braut Harland and Kylian Mbappe were usurping Cristiano Ronaldo was 
really quite widespread. But just thinking about that first idea, though, in terms of the end of an era talk for Spanish football or La Liga, how much credence do you give to that theory, Paolo? Yeah, so I've seen a lot of takes about this, Ali. Um, some of them you mentioned there, I've seen plenty of people on Twitter de- decrying the end of the La Liga era, others calling La Liga Farmers League afterwards. I've seen others say it was simply Haaland and Mbappe went off, they had a night where they were just unstoppable. And others have been a bit more measured. You've seen some just put it down to a couple of bad results. I think if we take that idea in isolation, the one you mentioned there, Ali, the end of a sort of generation, then you have to go back to sort of 2019, which is when I would say the end of the La Liga domination per se came about. And we say La Liga domination. What we're really talking about here is Barcelona and Real Madrid, because I don't think the rest of the league is weaker. I think the improved TV deal has given has distributed money about a bit more fairly. And I'd say Atleti are stronger than they have been for quite some time. Sevilla, equally, they look very solid. They've got Jules Koundé, who's one of the best centre-halves in the world at this point. So, yeah, if you go back to 2019 and you see Barcelona and Real Madrid's domination annihilated. So Barcelona, obviously, we know they had struggles beforehand. We know about Roma, we know about PSG um, admittedly they came back the first time but they did they were defeated 4-0, there's no escaping that fact and then I think that game against Liverpool where they lost in the semi-final it was mm. brutal to watch that mm. second half or just in general that second leg was pretty crushing I think a lot of people have enjoyed it but for Barcelona fans it was pretty, pretty hard to watch because you saw even though they had been defeated beforehand, there was sort of more belief that they could come back from it. There was a belief that perhaps in the right season, they could still win the Champions League. That Liverpool game, I think, destroyed all of that. I think it completely took away any mythology from Barcelona, any idea that they were Mm -hmm. somehow special, that they were in possession of some mystical key to the Champions League. Where And I think in that same season, you saw Ronaldo list Real Madrid get absolutely taken to pieces by Ajax. And that Liverpool team that beat Barcelona, they were missing quite a few players. That Ajax team was a young team. It was a good team. But it wasn't a team of superstars. And it certainly wasn't a team that is going to... I think it will go down in history for what they did. But it wasn't the best team in the world that they faced. And they were completely destroyed. I think those two games in isolation really marked or sort of pointed out the deficiencies in both of these sides and the direction that they were going in. Unfortunately for Spanish football, they've been, or fortunately, depending on your viewpoint, they've been unable to arrest that decline. And I think we're just seeing seeing the results of that manifest at this point. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll be a, a wee while until they can regain that sort of level. I think if we speak in a sort of more macro version... Obviously, La Liga, as I said, I don't think it's got weaker as a league. I do think there's something to be said that it's no longer at the forefront of ideas. I think, again, I said, we're just talking about Barcelona and Real Madrid here. If you go back a decade ago, you had probably the best counter-attacking team in the world in Real Madrid. Three, four passes. They could completely rip a team apart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you had probably the side that in possession could circulate the ball faster than anyone else. And so there's definitely 
I think a decline in proactive coaching in the sense that I don't think I any of the coaches in the top sort of six, seven teams. So some of them, okay, Real Sociedad, Aguasili plays possession football, it's forward thinking, but I don't think they're at the forefront, the sort of cutting edge of football at the moment, which I think is where you see the really great change in Spanish football. Mm-hmm. So overall, do I think it's the end of an era? Yeah, it's the end of an era for Real Madrid and Barcelona, and they'll they'll be back eventually, but it'll take some time. For the rest of La Liga, no, it's it's just a few bad results. Be really interesting to see how Real and Barca do get on in the next three seasons in the Champions League. You recently promised that a section on Levante manager Paco Lopez would be headed our way if they were to make it past Athletic and reach the Copa del Rey final. The second leg is still a week away as we record, but you couldn't resist chatting about the 53-year-old coach in this episode. Tell us more, Barlow. My adoration for Paco Lopez is, is no secret. I think if you follow me on Twitter, then you'll know that. But if we just look at their last five fixtures in isolation, so they knocked out Villarreal in the Copa del Rey quarterfinals in a derby in the 120th minute against a Villarreal who are desperate for silverware. Unai Emery was brought in for the specific purpose of winning a trophy. After that, they drew with Athletic, who arguably the most informed team in Spain. You could, you could definitely make that argument. And certainly they've been eating up teams in recent Mm-hmm. Uh, games mm-hmm. then they have a 1-0 defeat to Osasuna which we're going to ignore as it does not fit my narrative <laughs> then they draw with league leaders Atleti and then they win against them on Saturday at the Wanda Metropolitano it's the first win at the Wanda for an away team since December 2019 and it's only Atleti's second La Liga defeat of the season Paco Lopez he's been he's won many plaudits for his style of play it is forward thinking it's proactive and he looks to maximize the talents of his players they've got a talented team there at Levante but they're obviously still minnows in the grand scheme of things they don't have a huge budget Um, and so the ability to punch above his weight and play nice football was what he was known for and completely fair play to him for that but I think we've seen a real development in Paco Lopez this season He's shown Levante have different ways to win. I think that's the that's the most notable thing about Levante's development this season. And you saw across those five games, the different games they played. They complete, played completely different games. And in the Frutos, who's joint level or maybe one behind in the assist charts, but Jorge de Frutos is de- quickly developing into one of the better players in La Liga. I think the development of him and Danny Gomez from... Players who, when they made their debuts this season, they didn't look up to scratch. They looked pretty pretty poor. And I think many people, and myself included, thought that perhaps they'd made a mistake in the transfer market, not bringing in more established or perhaps bigger names, so to speak, in Levant, in relative terms for Levante. And he's, he's managed to use his full squad. I think that ability to change was shown most in those two games against Atleti. They showed character in both games. The first game, the 1-1 draw at their home stadium, Orioles, they went with their usual system and they played 4-2-3-1 and they played attack and football. They played football. They went toe-to-toe with Atleti and granted, Correa missed a good chance, but equally, Levante could have won that game. Then you saw they rotated completely against Atleti at the Wanda, second string side, and they went five at the back, 
three in midfield and two sort of normally up top. At times it's more of a four-five-one, five-four-one. Uh, sorry, and they just showed complete and utter belief in their system and their measure to survive against that Atleti side who threw everything at them. I think they had twenty-eight shots. <laughs> and it's it's remarkable that they managed to completely change system, completely change identity in a way in the space of three, four days and take four points off the best team in Spain this season. I don't think it's long before we start seeing Paco Lopez linked to bigger jobs because admittedly his side hasn't qualified for Europe in the same way that Diego Martinez has, but that ability to get the most out of his players, to get the most out of an entire squad is not going unnoticed. And if you look at his record against the big teams, Real Madrid in La Liga, they've won three times, lost three. Barcelona, okay, they've lost five, but they've also beaten them three times. I think you'll find very few teams that have as good a record against Barcelona and Real Madrid, let alone Minos. I think Atleti will probably have a worse record. And so, yeah, my hat's off to Paco Lopez. And if he takes Levante to to the Copa del Rey, he's got a strong claim to being their best manager ever. Paulo, I was just wondering on this one with Lopez, where do you think he would be well suited to if he was to make that step up to a bigger team? That's a really good question, actually. I think Villarreal is not a bad shout. Obviously, you know, Emery's just come in there, but I think he, you'd want him to go to a Champions League team before he went to a really big job. You'd want him to take it as a stepping stone. And I think a team where he has talented players, he wants a team that has a good 10 or a good number nine who can play, play a bit, so to speak, who can, who's got the technical ability to bring others into the game. Because I think that's where you've seen him at his best. You've seen Morales, who's a cult hero now. He's now 33, 34, and he's scoring goals still. He's assisting. Eugène Marti has turned into one of the better number nines in La Liga too. And it's Bardi, another real talented player. And I think he was linked with maybe a Premier League move earlier on in the summer, perhaps. But yeah, I think you want to see him at a team that's got plenty of flair, that's maybe got more of a solid defence than he has at the minute, because that's where Paco Lopez does tend to struggle more. And then I think you could really see the best of him. You've also been ruffling feathers on Twitter with your recent comments on Villarreal, who you just mentioned. But Football is nothing without debate. Explain this one to us. Yeah, so um, I got into it. Got into it. It was much more um, cordial than that. Um, with a guy from the Villarreal USA podcast, which is a great podcast, um, and a guy called Zach Hicks, who is very knowledgeable on Villarreal. Essentially, he took issue with me saying that Emery should be more attacking because Villarreal aren't quite getting the results that they need at the moment in the league. And his point... And I, I take it, granted, he's saying that Villarreal have suffered a lot of injuries. They've been without Paco Alcácer and without Gerard Moreno for large parts of the season, which I do understand. And he made the point on the Villarreal USA podcast, which I went back and listened to, that if you were to sit to talk about those injuries at the start of the season and say Villarreal are in a Europa League spot and still in the Europa League, with those injuries, you'd be like, yeah, that's okay, that's fine, that's a good job. Having said that, I'm going to stick to my point. And I think the point that I'm making is not dissimilar to what Alan and Sid, who were also on that podcast, were saying, is that even if you take into account their injuries and their situation, their results might not be 
too bad, but they've also they're also the team that's drawn the most games in La Liga. I think it's now thirteen draws, which is pretty remarkable for a side that at the start of the season its ambition was to challenge for the Champions League one way or another, whether that be through winning the Europa League or through qualification in the league. And I think the point that I'm trying to make was really illustrated by their draw with Athletic on Sunday night because they took the a point in Bilbao again on the face of it. Not too bad. It's a decent result. As we said, they're one of the form teams at the moment. But they took the lead against Athletic and then proceeded to sit back for the next 60 minutes. So I think they took lead about the 20th minute. And I just, I couldn't understand it because you've got Danny Perejo, Moy Gomez, Gerard Moreno, as we've mentioned quite a lot in recent weeks, Manu Trigueros and Paco Alcácer, all chasing the ball for 60 minutes. And they're one of the teams that has the best sort of ball-playing midfielders in the league. I can't understand how you're maximising the talents of your squad if Danny Perejo and Moy Gomez and so on are having to chase the ball against the Bilbao side, which although they've changed under Marcelino, they're not known for their ability to keep the ball, they're known for wanting to hold on to possession. And if you looked at the XG of that game, I think they had an XG of 0.06 and Bilbao had maybe one of 2.66 or something, something yeah. ridiculous like that. Yeah. Game finished 1-1, FYI. Yeah, they went and on for the last 10 minutes, Chukweze came, came on and they were good when they went on the attack. They looked like they were more capable of winning it in those last 10 minutes. Granted, Athletic tired, but yeah, I just think there's more to come from that Bury outside. And okay, he's doing a fine job, but that doesn't mean... I think I think the, the idea of being sort of very focused on results is something that we try to avoid too much because results tell you a lot, but eventually they will either fall off a cliff or improve if you are doing things well or badly, as we've seen with the likes of Jose Mourinho in the Premier League. And yeah, I just think there's more more to come out of that Villarreal side. Thanks, Barlow. Well, Michael Jones' Wi-Fi has let him down again. Either that or he was just fed up listening to you speaking about Villarreal, although I assume it's it was. quite possible. The, the, the former. Um, Barlow, it's been great listening to you. It was great listening to Michael as well. Hopefully Michael is... Has only left just because his, his Wi-Fi let him down. And what I will say to you, Barlow, is go forth and ruffle some more feathers on <laughs> Spanish football Twitter. We'll speak to you again in a fortnight. We'll speak to Michael again in a fortnight. And we'll be back in touch with you, the listener, in a fortnight. As always, stay safe, stay well. Good night. <laughs>